Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm pleased to be here today with Dr. Carl Chaki. Welcome to Retina Synthesis, Carl. Carmen, I'm looking forward, and thank you so much for inviting me. Carl is CEO of the Retina Institute, the Retina Foundation of the Southwest, where he is also director of the T. Boone Pickens uh, Laboratory for Retinal and Macular Degeneration Research. Carl is uh, an accomplished clinician scientist who uh, very recently co-founded a company, Vinci Pharmaceuticals, which is looking at some innovative uh, delivery systems and uh, drugs for retinal targets. And one of the first areas of interest is dry AMD. So Carl, what is your vision for treating dry AMD as we move forward? Yeah, so, um... You know, it's one of the big last unmet needs, right? And it's a tough nut to crack because, you know, things move slowly and the uh, degenerations progress slowly. So unlike uh, DME or macular neovascularization where we can see results pretty quickly, it's a little more challenging in the area of, of dry AMD. But, you know, the hope is that as we start to understand the impact the uh, disease has on various anatomic features and functional features that we didn't really appreciate even 10 years ago, that hopefully we'll be able to identify uh, precursor lesions, uh, lesions that put the patients at higher risk for progression, and hopefully be able to then ther use therapies uh, to slow progressions and or potentially improve in some cases some um, functional aspects of the, uh, the uh, disease. So it's, it's gonna be an interesting um, next several years as more and more folks are getting into the space. Of course, we've been in the geographic atrophy space for a while uh, with unfortunately some notable failures, but we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. Um, intermediate AMD is a, a real challenge because patients have visual impairments. They come to us complaining about them, but we obviously don't have a therapeutic advance other than uh, the ARADS vitamin protocol. So what are your thoughts about measuring uh, and endpoints in intermediate AMD? And, yeah, so and then, that's, and then and then most importantly, when would you consider intervening in inter intermediate? I, yeah, so I think, you know, that's, one of the things that I was fortunate when I was at the NIH, I was able to work with uh, Wiley and his team and um, you know, really try to get into a, a dialogue and a conversation. Because as we all know, you know, when we're thinking about a therapy for any disease, there are numerous hurdles that you have to think about. Right? You have to think about, uh, first and foremost, are you really gonna have an impact on the uh, disease of pathogenesis? And of course, if you have kind of deciphered what you think is going to be the pathway and you want to you know, somehow interfere with that, then you've got to be able to design clinical trials that can be, you can measure some degree of, of efficacy. And then of course that has to go to the FDA and the FDA then has to review it and come up with some you know, terms of approvability. And, and, and then of course, you've got to then go to insurance carriers and worry about reimbursements. And then lastly, you have to worry about, you know, folks in the trenches, the, uh, the docs, and whether or not they'll be willing to, uh, 
use the uh, therapies. So I think with something like intermediate AMD, you've really got to think of all of those things in, in aggregate. Uh, so you can try to identify, it's clear that there are a significant number of our patients who don't get worse. You know, they don't, they stay stable for many, many, many years. They have, for the most part, minimal deficits. And as I tell them, you know, you don't really need anything. You know, we're going to watch you, but you're not showing any signs of change. Um, but clearly there's a group of patients. And as I said, we're starting to identify OCT signatures of those patients who we think are going to progress more rapidly to atrophic changes. There's no no argument that the development of atrophy and the expansion of atrophy are approvable endpoints, right? So the uh, Wiley and his team have made it very clear to us that the loss of photoreceptors is a bad thing. So if we can identify patients who even have intermediate AMD who are at high risk for losing photoreceptors, uh, either through assessing their functional deficits or through uh, more um, OCT findings that we're seeing now precede these, these changes, um, you know, I think we have a chance. So I think there's been a lot of uh, development over the, in the last five years in our understanding of how to decipher and split apart this large group of patients that we call intermediate AMD, although Wiley in his last discussion kind of doesn't like to use that term, but clearly there is a group of patients that are at higher risk for progression. What is your startup's uh, technology and approach to this problem? Right. So, you know, this is an area that I've been working on, you know, uh, for shoot, a long, long time. And, you know, I was trained, uh, my PhD is in pharmacology. I've always been interested in understanding ocular pharmacology. And I've always told people that I think of all the things that we do uh, in the clinic uh, in terms of retinal diseases and trying to understand what can get into the clinic, understanding the ocular pharmacology of a therapeutic is one of the most important things. And so one of the things that I've been working on for many, many, many years is this idea that what are, what are better ways to get drugs into the eye from outside the eye, right? So all of our therapies, the majority of our therapies right now are administered through needles in the eye or through implants in the eye. And while that overcomes lots of the barriers, right? These barriers that, that, the, that we face, um, it becomes more challenging when you think of patients who still have relatively good vision, who might progress at slower rates. And so you really wanna be able to investigate a therapy that is minimally invasive, uh, that can deliver an agent over many, many uh, months, uh, potentially. Um, and so our therapy, so the, the uh, device that we are developing is an episcleral drug delivery device. Uh, we've optimized certain features uh, that are overcoming, we think, some of the barriers uh, that prevent drugs from getting into the eye. You know, some of the work that we've done over the many, many years has shown that the clearance of drugs away from the eye is very robust. And so by uh, kind of isolating our API from those clearance mechanisms. But the hope is that, that we can retain drug levels uh, on the surface for longer periods of time. And at the same time, we can then alter the API in a way that we think also optimizes its ability to get into the uh, tissue. And of course, the placement of this device more posterior gets it closer to the tissue, the retina, and especially the retinal pigment epithelium, and even the choroid, which we now are starting to identify as a major 
uh, kind of source of disease in AMD. So the hope is, is that these, this approach um, will allow us to deliver you know, our first API, but then going forward will be relatively API agnostic. So you could potentially put any API or therapeutic in this device once we've optimized and we know kind of how to control the uh, delivery uh, to the um, tissues. So that's kind yeah. of, that's our approach. What's the molecule of, of interest to begin with? Right. So right now, you know, we are um, big fans of the concept of mitochondrial dysfunction in AMD. Mm -hmm. And we think that we still think that 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 plays a pivotal role. A complement even interacts with mitochondrial in, in many significant ways. So the source we think of a significant pathology is that the mitochondrial dysfunction. And we know that some of the agents that can cause you know, the uh, improvement in mitochondrial function, and we've shown that in the lab, is glutathione, uh, naturally occurring agent that are at reduced levels um, in patients with AMD. And so the API is essentially an esterified form of a precursor to glutathione. Uh, the concept of esterification, you know, it's been around for a long time and latanoprost and there are other agents that have definitely been, are on the, on the market. And they simply use the concept of esterification to get drug, you know, more efficiently into the eye. So what we've done is esterified uh, a group of precursor APIs that will be delivered from this device and that will allow us to deliver the uh, potentially delivers the, uh, the therapeutic for you know many months because we can of course load the uh, device and um, and get a sustained delivery um, kind of aspect to the uh, patients what would a phase one trial of uh, this device and drug look like yeah i mean i think you know like like is kind of the, the you know the um, the norm. You know, you always want to be thinking about you know the safety first. Um, one of the things that you know we were very much focusing on, and, and as you know, you know a lot of what kind of kills um, approaches is any kind of uh, safety uh, index. And of course, the uh, precursors to glutathione are extremely safe. Uh, we've already had some experience, and of course, we place devices in the episcleral space all the time, you know, buckles and all kinds of things. So we know that that space is pretty tolerant, tolerant to anything. So while we're, you know, proposing, you know, a safety study per se, you know, we're going to try to see if we can get some degree of early uh, efficacy signal, even from the phase one study. So uh, what kind of characteristics would you be looking for in patients in that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what, what we begin to see is that this group of patients who have already are either at high risk for developing GA or who have some uh, extrafobial GA or even those patients, interestingly, you know, who have significant um, changes either um, with drusen or reticular pseudodrusen, but most importantly, have significant um, low luminance deficits. And we've been able right. to measure low luminance deficits, not only in visual acuity, but um, in using a novel uh, automated quantitative contrast tool that also measures uh, low luminance contrast. So we've identified, you can identify groups of patients who are at significant, you know, who exhibit significant deficits uh, with these tools. 
And, um, and so the hope is, is that as you assess the safety of this device in these patients, we might see, if we're lucky, um, some signs of improvement. So low luminance uh, reading, uh, do you think that's a potential endpoint that the yeah. FDA might look at? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in, in when we held our 2016 um, symposium that I helped run, you know, the FDA, and, and this is true for many years, you know, they're very much supportive of functional endpoints. I mean, that's ultimately what patients want is they want functional improvements, right? And so um, any functional assessment um, is something that they look on very favorably. The challenge becomes that, as you know, even with visual acuity, right? Visual acuity is a, is a wonderful endpoint. It's used to approving, you know, lots of our agents, but, you know, there's a high bar, right? I mean, there's 15 letter gains that you have to demonstrate. Why? Because all of our visual function tools tend to be very noisy. And so you've got to be able to demonstrate a, a therapeutic benefit that, that um, overrides the noise, the test retest variability. So one of the things that we are very much, you know, we look at, especially with some of the newer um, algorithms that you can impose on these functional assessments is you can, in some cases, dramatically re reduce the uh, noise. And so the hope is, is that you'll be able to generate some signal um, with some of these uh, low luminance tools that we're using right now. Um, low luminance, you know, reading speed is one of them, but again, these tend to be somewhat noisy and there's lots of tests, retest variability. So we have to be very much aware of that aspect when we go with functional assessments. But I think, you know, there's, there's a group of patients that I think we can identify and we've, we've been doing that already in the clinic and we've started to do that in clinical trials for GA, for example. I think that's very exciting. All of us as clinicians know that patients uh, complain even when their Snellen acuity is not bad. They're really impaired uh, in terms of functions of everyday life reading. So looking and developing other endpoints is really quite important, both in terms of treatment and documenting the efficacy of your interventions. Yep. Yeah. So I think, you know, and, and I agree. I mean, I think that's always been, and now that we have these tools, you can really see in, in some uh, cases, profound deficits. Um, and what's most interesting, uh, and we've published some of this work, is that they don't always correlate uh, to the anatomic changes. So if mm -hmm. it's just drusen alone, a drusen doesn't necessarily always correlate with these functional deficits. So there are other OCT signatures that we're looking at as well. Uh, so there's clearly a heterogeneic um, kind of uh, cadre of patients and we have to identify those patients who are most at risk and most severely um, affected by their um, AMD. Can you talk a little bit about the episcleral implant, what it's like and how it's yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, used? Yes. Yeah, so it's something that we've iterated for many, many years, right? And, and one of the things, and of course, you know, it's always a challenge. I mean, we've seen, you know, failures. Anacortef, you know, is probably the most famous failure of a drug that was placed in the episclerol space, right? And and there's reasons that you know I was fortunate enough to work with Alcon at the time, and I think um, 
we've learned, and I think sometimes we learn more from the failures than we do from any kind of success. And I think we learned a lot about, you know, what are the barriers? And we published a lot of that work. As I said, uh, it's really quite profound, the, um, the speed at which drugs placed on the surface uh, even a sub-tenons injection, you know, I mean, you've seen this, and we've all seen this in the clinic, where we inject a large bolus of, you know, mostly triamcinolone or whatever agent we have uh, in the sub-tenon space, and in a very rapid period of time, the fluid is gone. So the clearance rates of fluid away from the eye are extremely rapid. And so what we've tried to do is design and a device uh, that kind of um, isolates the API from these very robust episcleral clearance um, uh, vessels. Some of them are lymphatic, some of them are blood vessels. And so as the device then uh, allows you to, for, the, for the drug to basically be isolated from these clearance mechanisms. Um, and then hopefully, and again, the, the, the size of these, as you know, you know, the episcleral space can tolerate really large devices, you know, bar belts and Maltinos are, you know, enormous devices. Uh, we won't need that larger device, but I think we've got enough capacity uh, in the space to then load the drug uh, into these devices that will give us six months, even a year of delivery if needed. Uh, the early phase was, of course, will be shorter duration just for, they're easier to, to think about the um, uh, kind of how to organize a trial, a three-month trial versus a six-month or a 12-month trial. But going forward, if things look good, uh, then we can go ahead and start delivering the drug for longer periods of time. So what other kind of uh, molecules can this delivery system work with? I mean, it's really, I mean, in many cases, it's, it's agnostic. I think the only thing that we don't have the capability of delivering at at the present time, but it's we're working on it, and that are you know proteins and and um, RNAs and things like that. Although again, uh, going forward there'll be capacity potentially for that. But right now we're looking at mostly uh, small molecules and uh, and our cadre of small molecules. Another uh, drug that we're looking at, and again, we're looking at uh, pathways that we think will be more straightforward and easy. Um, so things like even Nepafenac, which is of course a non-steroidal, um, is something that uh, is, it's not esterified, it's an amidization. Um, so it's got an amide group, but it also has the same concept of lipophilicity and it gets into the eye, we know from topical administration to a small degree. And so the question is, can you get more robust tissue uh, uptake by sustained episcleral uh, you know, approach? And so that's something that uh, we're looking at. And of course, as I said, you know, it's relatively uh, API agnostic. So we can, we can really start to look at a whole, um, you know, smorgasbord of potential mechanisms and API as we get full, as we go forward, especially as we start to, you know, fully dissect the, uh, the pharmacology uh, of that space in patients. Is the delivery system something that would be implantable in the, in the office setting? So, you know, the, the ultimate idea, and it's, you know, this is where, you know, it's, it's a very interesting uh, discussion between, um, you know, what's, what's uh, you know, obviously the uh, device could be placed uh, potentially in the office. Um, you know, you, there's also reimbursement issues that favor 
um, placement in an ACS, for example, right? It could be a relatively simple procedure. Um, and in some cases might be needed at the beginning as we start mm -hmm. to make sure that the device is placed in the proper location. And of course, as you know, you know, having being full aware of all of the uh, reimbursement dynamics that can occur, uh, placement of this device in an ACS, for example, would be um, something that I think a lot of retina specialists would, would, would look at favorably in terms of both control and safety, but also for potential reimbursement as well. Well, this seems like a very powerful technology for delivering, sustained delivery of drugs to the eye in general, actually. Well, we'll see. Like I said, I mean, there are some real challenges. And I think, you know, like, um, you know, all of us who, who enter into this, you know, into, into these kinds of stuff, you know, it's, there are lots of um, unknowns and uh, lots of challenges, but we're hoping that, you know, as we push forward, we've got some really smart people on the team and we've made some really good progress, both in the uh, technologies and in animal modeling and things like that. So I think we've got, you know, we've got a pretty good shot at hopefully getting this to work. Well, Carl, you've always had a, a focus on translation in your uh, research, but now you've taken it to the next level because you're really trying to bring it to the marketplace. Tell us something about the founding of your company, what it's been like, uh, what have been the surprises? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, when I look at medical research, right, and even now I'm, you know, I sit on NIH study section. So I'm reviewing grants and there's a whole, you know, kind of spectrum of important research that's being done. Everything from basic science. I think once you start to really think about translating anything into the clinic, um, there's so many other aspects that you have to consider. You know, you have to consider the, um, the business model of the company, right? Um, is it going to make sense in terms of something that, you know, I wasn't really aware of cost of goods, right? So we know that there are certain things like uh, gene therapies, for example, where the cost of goods is very high. And so that means that the, um, the uh, costs going forward are going to be high as well. So having to worry about how many patients potentially could receive a therapy, where you want to get your kind of um, returns, you know, all these business aspects uh, the people who are looking at, at the company, while they get excited about the science, and I think the science is the critical, hopefully the critical driver, there's all these other aspects uh, that, you know, I wasn't really fully um, aware of. And uh, as I talk to people, especially on the business side of these kinds of efforts, you can really see that, you know, their, their perspectives, you know, are, have a, a degree of, of kind of aspects that I was not aware of. You know, if, if you're in the lab all the time and you're dealing with patients and, and you're thinking that I've got some great ideas, uh, there are all these other aspects that you really have to come to, you know, understand and, and may influence how you eventually uh, bring that product um, into a company and, and try to push it forward. Do you have any advice to uh, colleagues who are interested in pursuing a, a path such as this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, again, um, it all depends on, you know, where you want to go in terms of a disease, right? So I think if you're picking something like, you know, dry AMD, uh, which is tough, right? I mean, there's really no, you know, even when we look at the ARIDS formulations, you know, we know from the data that 
there's really very little impact on the dry component of AMD, right? It doesn't really affect Jerusalem volume. It doesn't affect GA growth. So we really, you know, in those kinds of aspects, um, you really have to kind of um, be prepared uh, that there's going to be lots of twists and turns. And I think it's critical. And one thing that I'm a big fan of at any area of research is the ability to iterate. You've got to be able to iterate over and over again uh, so that as you push forward and something doesn't work as well as you think it should work, um, you've got to be able to easily iterate. Uh, I think that's one cru uh, crucial aspect. Um, and the other crucial aspect is I think um, you have to be brutally honest with yourself, right? I mean, when when we do the, you know, when I look at some of the data that that uh, Vinci is generating, right? Um, you have to be very, you know, kind of brutally honest with yourself. Is this really, have we crossed the bar? Has the company crossed the bar uh, that we think is going to be, there's going to be success at the other end of the um, uh, effort. And I think uh, that's a little bit different than the lab, right? So the lab, we're working hard, we, we get successes. Um, but when you're doing a, a company thing, you know, you're going to, you've really got to raise the, um, the uh, bar to a higher level. Uh, so as you push forward, you know, you, you don't end up doing missteps and that's going to cost you time and, and money. Well, Carl, thank you so much for this uh, conversation. I think uh, the potential of what you're working on is extraordinary. And I think your insights into dry macular degeneration and drug delivery are really ter terrific. And so thanks a lot for being on retina synthesis. We appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Carmen, enjoyed it. Be well, and thank you so much. Yeah, great.